And I wanted to introduce it in this way uh, before Tim comes up and reads to us. I heard uh, a preacher this week, I was listening to somebody watching someone on the internet stand up and say something that was true but wrong. And what I mean by that is this. He stood up and he said to his congregation, you're here and you've committed adultery. Jesus loves you. God forgives you. Amen. Amen. Yes, amen. And everyone was saying amen, amen, amen. And I was thinking, why, why doesn't that work? Why is that wrong? And, I, and I, it took me ages to work out why it was wrong, because each phrase on its own is true, but put collectively together, it's wrong. And I'll tell you why, and you'll see why. Because he's going from, we are here sinners, and here we are forgiven. Jesus loves us. Jesus forgives us. And he doesn't show us how we go from there to there. So it's very easy for someone hearing that to say, well, God forgives me. That's what God does. I I do whatever I want. God will forgive me. And that is not what the Bible teaches. It does teach the forgiveness of God. It does teach that Jesus loves us and Jesus died for us. But the seriousness of sin is missing from that. And because of that, what Jesus has done is somehow cheapened. It's just turned into a cliche. Let's get this over with. Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Now let's get on with life and let me tell you how to practically live. We need to go back, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at that and see uh, about what Jesus says and what Jesus does with sin and about sin. And as part of that, we're going to read, I'm going to ask Tim to come and read Luke chapter 5 from verse 17, which tells us about Jesus' power and the astonishing claims that he makes to be able to deal with sin. Luke 5 from verse 17 to the end. This passage is found on page 1032 in the church Bibles. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house. 
and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples and the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on the old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will, not, will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is better. And let's turn to First John um, and chapter 1. While we're turning there, Stephen, could I get a glass of water? Sorry. Thanks. Since you... First John chapter 1. Um, does anyone have the page number for that? No. 1225. Thank you. Let me read from verse 5, but we're going to look at verse 8 uh, to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Sometimes a Christian can feel really, really discouraged. A non-Christian, sometimes you get a non-Christian and they don't really want to hear. If you're not a Christian here, you don't really want to hear. And already your, your kind of antenna are going and the alarm bells are going and the defenses are coming up. You don't really want to hear about sin. And sometimes you get non-Christians who just hate that whole language and don't accept it and say you're going on a guilt trip and, and so on. And then you get Christians who claim to have been forgiven and we feel very discouraged. It's funny, uh, sometimes I meet a young Christian, they've been a Christian for about a year. When they first became a Christian, everything was wonderful. Sky was bluer, the grass was greener, everything in life was fantastic. And then they come and they say, you know, David, I've been a Christian for a year and I feel that I'm actually worse than I was. I just don't feel I'm making any progress at all. But I tell you what's happening. It's back to where John is talking about walking in the light. If you walk in the darkness, you don't see the darkness. If you walk in the light, you see the stains, you see the guilt. It's why when we, we ask for God to come amongst us in His Holy Spirit 
to be with us. It's why it's such a dangerous prayer, because God will show us things that we just didn't know were there. And actually, Christians of all people, do you know how some of us as Christians, we come across as incredibly arrogant, incredibly self-righteous, incredibly know-it-all? But of all people, Christians should be humble and should be, we should, a mark of growing in grace as a Christian is that you don't look down on anybody because you know that even if they're in the gutter, you could be there too. And you don't, you, you, you can never look on another human being as a Christian and, and perceive them as scum or as less than you, or at least, at least we shouldn't. I think as well, there is a problem with this whole idea of sin, that there are Christians who recognize sin in others. We are remarkably good at that. We've got really good antenna for spotting where other people go wrong. But we almost get to a stage where we think that we ourselves have arrived. In theory, we say we have sin, but in practice, um, we don't act like it, at least to ourselves. We don't think like it. And then there's another problem, and that's to do with the teaching that some people have. So it's, it's been used in different ways. Sometimes there's, a, there's jargon. Christians use jargon. There's jargon like second blessing or the brokenness or the release of the Spirit. And the implication being that I was a Christian, I was a sinner, but then God dealt with me, and now He's raised me to heights almost of perfection. And I have to say that these type of Christians are the most frustrating and annoying people to meet because they've got all the religious language and all the jargon and hallelujah, praise Jesus, and they're just rotten, miserable sinners who don't recognize it, which is just, it, it, it is, uh, it's a dreadful situation to actually be in. Um, somebody, I don't know, there's so many stories told about Spurgeon that I think some of them must be apocryphal. But there's a story told of the Baptist preacher Spurgeon who came across somebody who said that they were sinless, that God had given them a second blessing and they'd received this and they didn't sin anymore. And Spurgeon just threw a cup of water at them and the man got really mad and started yelling and Spurgeon said, well, it didn't take long to wash that perfection away. Uh, and that's, if you even begin to think like that, you've got this sort of the extremes of people who are wandering around going, oh, I'm a miserable sinner, and oh, everything is miserable, and I'm miserable, and the only thing that makes me happy is that other people are miserable too. That, you've got that, and then you've got people who, well, I've attained this level of sanctification, and glorification, and praise the Lord, and, and everything else, and I, you can be like me too. And everyone looking is going, if that's sanctification and glorification, I'm not even sure I want to go to heaven to be with you because it, it, it just rubs up the wrong way. So we come in with this teaching then that, that John brings in that situation. He's, he's already said, we've seen Jesus. Jesus is the life. God is the light. We walk with the light. God forgives us. He now goes on to talk about, I'm going to basically talk about two things, denial and deceit and confession and forgiveness. So let's look first at the denial and deceit. If we claim to be without sin. Now what is amazing in, in, in terms of human psychology and where we are in the world today is this, that an optimistic evolutionary humanism teaches an optimistic view of human nature. Humans are getting better. 
Humans are good people who occasionally get screwed up, usually by religion or by their circumstances, but humans are basically good people. If things aren't going well, give them a bit of money, everything will be okay. Be nice to one another. Be kind to one another. And in lots of churches, by the way, right now, across our nation, there will be preachers standing up and saying, Christianity is be nice to one another. Because humans are good. Bring out the goodness in people. And it's an incredible faith because we have no evidence for it whatsoever. And in fact, it's a dangerous faith. As a result of that faith, the chickens hatched by atheistic philosophies are coming home to root. Let me give you just a couple of examples how this works. Take David Steele in the 1967 Abortion Act. I have no doubt that he was sincere in what he was attempting to do, to prevent the number of deaths from women having illegal backstreet abortions. And everyone's got to have some degree of, you've got to have more than some degree of sympathy with that. But when Steele was interviewed a couple of years ago, he said, I did not realize that it would turn out the way that it has with so many. I thought it would reduce the number of abortions. And if you look at the debate at the time, everyone was saying it will reduce the number of abortions because people will see that this is not a good idea and, and you know, people are basically good and so we'll have less. We now have more than double. We have about 200,000 a year in Britain. David Steele thought it would lead to less abortions, safer abortions. Yet in 1967, there were 36 women who died because of unsafe abortions. And it's reckoned that uh, there were 200,000 babes in the, in the womb who were killed last year. And, and a significant number of women still died from unsafe abortion or from complications in childbirth. It's the same when we talk about the thing that's going, Margaret MacDonald's trying to get through Parliament. If you look at it, if you, if you listen to Margaret MacDonald, she makes absolutely perfect sense if human beings are good. If human beings are good, and if there's no considerations of money and family and power and corruption and so on, then what Margaret MacDonald says makes a lot of sense. But if human beings are not good, then if the Scottish Parliament were ever to pass that, it would be incredibly dangerous allowing doctors to kill people. If you have an optimistic view of humanity, it's actually an extremely dangerous view. Let me put it another very, very simple way. You say, ah, oh, don't be so negative. Right, imagine you've got children and uh, a guy comes up to you on the street and he says, I see your six-year-old daughter. I would like her to take her to the cinema and an ice cream and can she come for a sleepover with me? And you think, oh, what a nice guy. It's dangerous. It's really stupid. If someone came up and did that, you'd be thinking, what's wrong with this guy? And then, if you have an optimistic view of human nature, you say, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just being kind. But you don't. You, we don't act like that because we know that although you can't necessarily automatically judge people and put them all in the thing, we know that there is uh, sin within human beings. And what John is saying here is he's saying, look, if we claim to be without sin, he's talking about human nature. If we claim we don't have a sinful human nature, then we're deceiving ourselves. Now again, what's important in that is to realize sin is not just a disease or a weakness. Sin is something that is part of us that we have, that we are. How many times do you and I excuse ourselves by saying, 
I couldn't help it. Or the great Scottish phrase, it wasn't me. Now, I'd love to have Paul talk about, preach a sermon on it wasn't me, because we've got the, the Scottish cringe, it wasn't me. And we do it all the way, you know, it's, it's, it's always blame someone else, or I can't help it, it's my genetic makeup, or I can't help it, it's just a weakness. But the Bible goes much, much more radical than that and says, yes, it is a weakness. Yes, it is a disease, but it's, it's much more radical than that. It goes right to the very heart of our being. Now, let me just say one or two things about what sin is and take the, some of the verses up here. First of all, sin is universal. It's absolutely universal. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Real Christianity does not divide the world into good people and bad people. Real Christianity says that no matter who you are, and of course I include myself in this, all of us have sinned, all of us have become corrupt, no one does good. Now, you qualify that by saying, of course we can individually do good actions. But even then, so often, they are with mixed motivations. Paul takes that up and adds to it in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So, an optimistic view of humanity says human beings are basically good. A Christian view of humanity says human beings are basically bad. And will provide the evidence for that. Now, let me include in that that sin includes religious people. Because again, people have this idea, there are you, you're standing up in a pulpit, or you're a Christian, and you're saying you're better than other people. No, actually, as a Christian, if you were a Christian, you shouldn't say that. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. John 15, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles and that they've hated both me and my father. Here's an extraordinary thing. If you are a Christian and you hear God's word and you hear the Bible and you know what Jesus says, you're probably more guilty of sin than people who've never, ever heard, or people who are not Christians. There's a sense in which people who don't know and haven't heard, they have some kind of excuse. But what excuse do I have? I don't have an excuse. I've got God's Word, and, and, and sin affects us as well. Now, let me just do a little bit like I tried to do last week. The a little bit of the thinking behind all of this as well in a kind of broader context. These are dangerous views of sin. One is a religious view, the view of perfectionism. And that teaches, really, the denial of sin. It's, it's a view that some people have. I was a sinner. I became a Christian. Maybe I was struggling along a bit, but I've reached a certain level. I'm now so much better. And of course, what it does is it leads to pride. And what is pride? Pride is the sin of the devil. So ironically, people who think that they are better than other people or they are um, less sinful are walking into the biggest sin of all, the sin of pride. Perfectionism, you will not be perfect. 
until you get to heaven. And by the way, there's a practical teaching in this as well. Sometimes you get Christians who are very, very naive, and they come to a church and they say, this is wonderful. So they might come in here to St. Peter's, and I've actually had people do this, and they said, love the church. We think you're great, David. You know, and I'm going, yeah, of course. And, you know, all these kind of things. And they say, but you know that within six months, they are going to be really badly hurt because someone is going to hurt them. Someone is going to say something or do something, or I'm the most likely to do that. And, and, and they're, going to, they're going to, oh, we think you're horrible. So they go from kind of, you know, St. David to we doubt you're even converted. And it's just, it, it, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and you, you think, please get a grasp of sin because it's there for all of us. It's in all of us. And, and especially as a Christian, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. And he says it towards the end of his life. He doesn't say I was. He says I am because he's become more aware of it. So perfectionism, it leads to pride. Please, please, please. Don't, absolutely don't be in despair about sin at one level, but don't ever put yourself above other people in terms of sin. You've not made it. You've not grasped the Christian teaching about sin until you can honestly say, I am the chief of sinners. Godless humanism, I've said godless humanism because there is actually, I believe, a Christian humanism, secular humanism, that optimistic view of human nature. It is so dangerous because it leads to hubris and destruction. We destroy ourselves. And that, by the way, is absolutely the road that our culture is set on. I do think that when Tony Blair got elected, I remember just watching on the television all the celebrations and the theme tune was, things can only get better. And I'm going, can nobody see this? It's not even I was against Tony Blair or Labour or uh, anything like that. But the words, it was another song going through my head, which was the words of the, who, of the who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, won't get fooled again, which now you go on and you see all these things that, have, that are happening and people are shocked and people are surprised. Why are we shocked and why are we surprised? Godless humanism is just such a destructive and dangerous thing. Antinomianism, that's the view that there is no law, that's the people who say, who cares? That leads to evil. Because if there is no law, do what you like. Hurt whoever you want. doesn't matter. There is no law. So what the Bible says is, look, if we deny about ourselves that we are sinful, it's actually ourselves we are deceiving, not others. Amazingly, I, I could easily deceive myself that I'm a really good person and better than other people, but most of you would see that straight away. It was rubbish you would know that that wasn't true. We lie to ourselves and we're so believable to ourselves. The Gnostics who, Paul, who John is writing about here were people who had claimed to have advanced to a stage beyond sinfulness. If you deny this truth, the truth is not in you. If you deny that you are a sinner, then you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. One of the essences of being a Christian is just holding your hand up and saying, I'm wrong, and Christ is right. 
If you claim to be a Christian, but living without sin, you're, you're, you're certainly in a very messed up state and very poorly taught. Listen to the Word of God. We aim to be without sin. It's a fact that we will carry our sinful nature with us until we die or Christ returns. Now, verse 9 we'll come back to, but verse 10, it's slightly different. We claim to be without sin, as verse 8 is about our nature. Verse 10 is about our actions. If we claim we have not sinned, and it's talking about specific actions. The denial of the inward principle about being sinners by nature leads to a denial of our actions as being sinful. And that is, of course, there wasn't me or it wasn't my fault culture that we live in. Now, he goes a bit stronger here because he says, if we say we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. God says, you're a sinner. You say, no, I'm not. You're saying that God is a liar. The question then becomes, how much in denial we really are? Because the denial of sin is extremely deep and extremely subtle. Because if you're an evangelical Christian, you're going to go, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner, I admit I'm a sin, got that over, that's fine. But no, that's not how it works. We have to be aware of that. That's why we've started in the mornings, at least, um, when we come into God's presence in worship, doing a collective confession of sin. Why? Is this turning us into Anglicans or Catholics or whatever? Is this trying to be more liturgical or trendy? or what? No, it's because it's very simple. We can't come into God's presence without acknowledgement of our own sin, and it's good to do it collectively. And it's good also to have the assurance of pardon that comes from God's grace. And here, the solution is spoken about in terms of confession and forgiveness. If we confess our sins, let's go back to verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. Openly and honestly, without excusing, we face up to who we are and what we have done. The simplest way of describing this, it's when you agree with Jesus' assessment of yourself. When you have an assessment of yourself that you then put on to Jesus and say, Jesus loves me, this I know because I think I'm a really good person. You're denying, you're deceiving yourself and other people. But when you take Jesus' assessment of you and you accept it, then that is confession. Confession is repentance, recognizing what is wrong and who is responsible and asking God in His mercy to deal with both through Christ. Confession is not apologizing. I don't know if any of you watched the fascinating thing with um, Mr. Blair being before the committee and so on, everyone being in uproar because he hadn't apologized. I did actually feel quite sorry for him, but I just thought, an apology is utterly meaningless. If he'd done something wrong, then it needs to be confessed and repented of. But apologies all the time. You can, apologies are cheap. That's about the level that our, our culture will go at. We need, in that sense, confession is not apologizing. It's admitting here, he says, we confess our sins, and it's, it's a plural, and it means specific sins. We confess our sins, not just sin in general. Someone's standing up and saying, Lord, yeah, I confess I'm a sinner. Now let me get on to the really good stuff. It's, we confess specific sins. That, that, that can be quite hard. In Proverbs 28 and verse 13, he who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. We conceal our sin 
we do not prosper. We confess them and renounce them. We find mercy. Now, Christian life is always one of balance, and you've got a reaction in the Christian church. You've got some people, the Roman Catholic Church says, you go to confession. You go, there's a man in a box with a curtain, and you confess your own particular sins to him, and he says, you're forgiven, and that's you forgiven. And in the worst type of Catholic theology, you can go and confess sins in advance. Father, forgive me, for I'm about to sin. Um, Father has no right. The priest minister has no right. There's a Protestant version of this as well, by the way, which I don't have time to go into, but no one can forgive except God alone. I had a very uh, good friend who's a Catholic doctor, and one thing he, he and I absolutely agreed on, he said to me, David, I see your point. If you can go direct to God, why would you go to the middleman? And I said, well, there is kind of a middleman, but the middleman is God himself. The middleman is Jesus. I'm not going to anybody else. We can confess to God. We can confess to Jesus. And we confess specifically. Luke 18, verse 13, the tax collector, in the original language, it's not God have mercy on me, a sinner, but God have mercy on me, the sinner. There is such an acute consciousness. See, here's again this strange thing that if you want to draw close to God, God will make you face up to the fact of your own sinfulness. And it is not comfortable. Our national poet, Rabbi Burns, oh, that God would give ourselves the gift to see ourselves as others see us. That's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift is to see God, to see ourselves as God sees us. But that is very, very uncomfortable. And that's why confession and repentance are not just the beginning of the Christian life, but they are the norm for the Christian life. We continue to confess and to repent. You will never in your life reach a point where you no longer confess and repent, where you no longer need to confess and repent. God peels back the layers all the time. We go deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, that's one of the great things about being a Christian. People talk about the deep life and the inner life and all that kind of stuff. God just goes into your life and in his word, he digs really, really, really deep. And it is sore. It hurts. It is more than embarrassing. It is painful. And yet God wounds, not in order to destroy, but to heal. Some people will say, well, if I'm a Christian and I'm forgiven, why do I need to confess my sins? Sin. We're told in verse 9, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. The Lord's prayer tells us, as we're going to pray in a moment, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's because we are forgiven that we walk in the light of God, that we see our sin, and that we repent. There, is a, a, there are two cycles in life, if you like. There are those who deny their sin and dig ever deeper into it. And there are those who confess their sin and are increasingly released from it and see the wonder of what Christ has done. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How do we know that God will forgive us our sin? Because one of the problems that some people have, partly because they have a shallow view of sin, partly because they have too great a view of themselves, and mostly because they don't get God at all, is that we confess and then we we don't let go and we think that it's not really confession, it's really remorse. 
How do I know I'm forgiven? And this I absolutely love because if we confess our sins, He forgives us not because we are so brilliant at confessing, but because He is faithful and He is just. In other words, it is the character of God. Forgiveness describes the act of canceling the debt and the restoration of the debtor. Forgiveness is based upon the faithfulness and justice of God. You see, when I did that introduction, the preacher saying, you, you may have committed adultery, but Jesus loves you and Jesus forgives you. The part he was really missing in that was, how does Jesus love? How does Jesus forgive? Does God forgive you because he's nice? Does God sweep your sins under the carpet? Does God say, no, it doesn't matter? No, God is light. There is no under the carpet. There is no, there is no hidden corner that God sweeps things away from. There are no dark places with God. But He still forgives. How does He do that? On what basis can we know that? Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. <coughs> he is the rock. His works are perfect and all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. Romans 3. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in His blood, He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There are things that God cannot do, and one of them is God cannot just forgive. He has to be just. His very nature is to be just, but it is the very character of God that the Christian knows complete forgiveness because of. If you do not accept and understand that God is just and that God is faithful, then what you will do is you'll confess and you'll kind of hope that your confession is enough for God to forgive you, but you'll never be absolutely sure. And the devil will come along as the accuser and he'll say, ah, but you did another sin or you didn't really mean it or you didn't confess properly and you'll get caught in this cycle of despair but if you acknowledge that you are a sinner and you recognize that Jesus came to die for sin and you recognize that God is just and if Jesus died for your sin, including those specific ones you are confessing, then God is not going to punish those sins twice. But why? Because God is just. God is light. God is goodness. We'll see that God is love. God is just. Now, God being just should cause us to tremble if it were not the fact of what Jesus has done. The penalty for our sin was paid and there is no second payment. God is faithful as well. He keeps his promises. God does not lie. I am forgiven. That, that song we sing sometimes at night, I am accepted. I am forgiven. How can you possibly say that except on the basis of the justice and the goodness of God? Assurances about God's character are the ground of our assurance about forgiveness. And that, you see, is why theology is so important, because until you get who God is, you will never grasp what forgiveness is and how it comes. But I, I, I just love that whole thing. I don't need a priest. I don't need a religious ritual. I don't need to, although I was listening to a bizarre program about how in every religion in the world, there are people who think if you beat yourself up, literally rip shreds out your flesh, torture yourself, that somehow there's a God who is pleased with that and it makes you more holy. No, it doesn't. It just makes you very sore, very stupid, and, and very proud in many ways. 
we as Christians, we, we, we sh- we're not taking things lightly, but we are, we are just absolutely gobsmacked and totally amazed at the one who was scarred and beaten and bruised and stabbed and bled and died for us. And that's why we're cleansed, because he says it purifies us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just, and he will forgive us. There is something extra. The forgiveness gets rid of the punishment. The purification frees us from the pollution. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be as white as wool. Isn't it the most astonishing miracle in the world? Not that people are raised out of that graveyard, but that you and I come before God and we are pure. We are forgiven. There's what, what you have done. Things in the back of your mind. You know, I keep a, a diary and sometimes I go back, very occasionally I go back and look over and think, did I really think that? Did I really do that? And in our minds, in our subconscious, I think everything's stored. And most of it, we say that 90% of our mind is not active. I think we should be probably very thankful for that because it just would bring stuff to the surface. When the Holy Spirit comes and works in our life, He convicts of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, not because He's putting stuff in, but because He's drawing stuff out. Because he's the ultimate psychologist. He's the ultimate psychiatrist. The spirit is working and this stuff is coming to the surface. And you're going, ah, the filth, the, 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 the sickness in my mind, the disease, the stupid things that I've done, the evil things that I've done, the rotten things that I've done. It's a bit like the Chelsea footballer John Terry. You know, he puts an injunction on the papers to, to, stop, him, to stop them gossiping about what he euphemistically calls his private life. And it's as though we in our stupidity try and put an injunction upon God and say, no, no, this is, you can't come near this, you can't come near this. And the Holy Spirit comes and the injunction is lifted and you would be absolutely overwhelmed and completely destroyed by the sight of your own sin if it wasn't for the sight of Jesus lifting that sin, putting it on his shoulders and bearing it to the cross. Whatever you have done, whatever you will do is forgiven because of what Jesus did. And you are purified. It's not just that you're forgiven. It's that you are made holy. The cross that pardons is the cross that gives us power to live. Now, there are two ways we can respond to this, and I'll say this very briefly. I'm sorry, I just, uh, I, 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 I love this aspect, this whole thing of, of the gospel. You can just simply say, no, no, I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to accept that I'm a sinner. I'm not going to accept I need forgiveness. I'm not going to accept that Jesus needs to die for my sin. I am not going to accept in theory a nice idea, but I'm not going to accept that there is anything fundamentally wrong with me. It's my family. It's my circumstances. It's my life. If you knew the life I had and all that kind of stuff, fine. Then what you're saying is God's word has no place in your life. Don't pretend that it does. You're saying it has no place in your life. You're basically saying that God is lying. You do not share in the reality of God. Walk away. Don't pretend to be religious and yet deny the reality of what Scripture says. Sometimes 
We pray the Holy Spirit to come and he will convict the world of sin, as Jesus says, righteousness and the judgment to come. When God's light exposes us, what some of us do is we dodge it and head for the darkness. But we have a choice. You and I can accept this word, hear it, believe it, come to Jesus for cleansing and receive forgiveness and purification. For me, it's a no-brainer. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know, and it's such a privilege every day to be able to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I agree with your assessment. And it's probably far worse than I realize. But what a fantastic gospel to have, to know on the one hand that I'm far worse than I could ever conceive to be, but I'm also far more loved than I will ever imagine, than I will ever really know. That's the gospel. And it's a a great gospel for us to have. And there are only these two reactions to it. You reject it. It has no place in your life for you and you continue in your sins, or you accept it, and you just thank the Lord for his forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful and just. How wonderful it is to know that that is the case, that if we confess our sins, you forgive us for our sins. We come to you, and we do confess Lord, there are specific things, hatreds, bitternesses we hold on to, jealousies, pride, gossip, slander, envy, sexual immorality, greed, materialism, so many things, idolatry. We confess before you and we bless you that every sin is forgiven as we trust in Jesus. Help us to do so, for we ask it in your name.